Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you on this third Sunday of Advent. We're almost there, right? It's good to be on the brink of the birth and to know that He's coming and that all of the hope, all of the joy, all of the love, and all of the peace is just within grasp. Hey, I know you know the Methodist Children's Home. It's a phenomenal organization. We have supported them for a number of years. And just a reminder, Christmas Eve, one week from today, at all of our services, 25% of all that we collect an offering at any of our Christmas Eve services will go to support them. Uh, we gave them over $25,000 last year. We hope to do the same uh, this year. So I know you'll want to be a part of all that. So uh, I know you'll want to be generous uh, during Christmas Eve. So when I reflect on the season of Advent, and in particular, this um, specific gift called love, right? We've been talking about hope and uh, that God sort of brought hope into the world through Christ, but even some 2,000 years before Jesus was born, this priest named Melchizedek helped lay the groundwork for that hope. We learned that two weeks ago, and then last week we learned about 1,000 years before Jesus was born that uh, David or some other writer of the Psalms was uh, bringing joy and pointing to this joy-filled gift that God was uh, going to bring into the world through the birth of His child, Jesus. Today we talk about love in the sort of tangible ways that love is real and has a, a sort of palpable context for us in our lives. And I have a rather strange analogy I want to give to you that helps me kind of um, live into that love and identify that love. Uh, it's a bird that lives in the, some of the rainforests in Africa. Uh, it's a kind of an ugly bird. It's a bird that um, exists to fly, of course, but it lives in a kind of treacherous environment. As you well know, almost anywhere on the continent of Africa where animals exist, there's a, a cycle of life, right? And some of it's easy and safe, and some of it is not easy and safe. And this particular bird lives amongst all kinds of predators, uh, whether it be the bush babies or the jackals, whether it be the monkeys or the serpents, even the eagles who can other predatory birds who will take uh, them. But this bird manages to thrive and fly and live well in the midst of all of that turmoil. The bird is the hornbill. You may know the hornbill. It looks a little bit like this. They are ugly, ugly birds. But they are phenomenal birds on a lot of different levels, right? They called the hornbill because of that great big beak that's just as big as it can be and uh, almost bigger than their whole body. And then on top of that beak sits that horn that is bigger than any other kind of normal horn. I mean, the rhinoceros has a horn for a reason. I don't know why the hornbill has this horn. But God made that hornbill, right, just like God made everything else, and that hornbill becomes a, an amazing metaphor, if you will, for the love that God demonstrates. And I want to share that story with you. Uh, today, because that hornbill, like most birds, flies free, demonstrates the power of that independence and the, the beauty and wonder of what that looks like. Their whole life is dedicated to that, like many birds. The one difference is when they begin to have birth and lay eggs, the woman, the mother's life radically changes, and she gives herself over fully to her chicks in a radically loving way. It takes shape a little bit like this. When it's time to lay some eggs, the mother hornbill flies around to find a perfect tree. The perfect tree exists in such a way that she, her beak, and her babies can reside within that nest that she will create. So the tree has to be pretty good size, 
And once she finds that tree and begins to create her nest, she uses her um, mate to help her wall herself in. She uses mud and her own fecal matter to create this wall that becomes as hard as cement so that she gives up her freedom, she gives up her capacity in order to birth her babies. She literally imprisons herself so that she can give life to the next generation. What's fascinating is the way it begins to take shape, not just there, but once her mate helps wall her in, she is now not only imprisoned, but fully dependent and fully reliant on her mate bringing her food. So the moment they have walled her off for the protection of her babies and the safety and saving of those babies, they create a small little slot just big enough, and mind you, it might be pretty good size, for that beak to fit out. And that slot is just big enough so that the beak can come out and Papa feeds her. So that there's no way she can eat, there's no way she can live, there's no way she can function except by the reliability and the dependability of her mate. So her mate will come on a regular basis every day and intimately feed her through that little slot so that the mate gives her life and her life gives life to her chicks. But what goes out also is fascinating. Not only is she receiving this intimate kiss of food, but every once in a while she has to release, right? And so she will turn and release her waist out that door for two primary reasons. She wants a clean nest. She wants an immaculate place in which to raise her children, but she also wants to ferret away any predators, right? So she aims pretty well when she spits that waist out and hits just the right person at just the right time so that they cannot glean her babies, take her, her travail. And so she exists in this amazing walled-off environment where she is giving herself fully to her chicks, but she's not done yet. For not only does waste come out of that hole, but at one point, once the chicks are born and they're still young and tender, something phenomenal begins to come out of that hole. Something so amazingly and terribly beautiful that every parent will fully understand and every follower of Jesus will grasp to the nth degree. For as those babies begin to raise, she plucks her feathers and she shoots them out the hole. She takes that massive, monstrous beast and she rips her body of her large uh, feathers, not the down and the softness, but of those dangerously treacherous uh, feathers that could kill her children. So one by one, she plucks them off so that she rips flight and freedom from herself. She rips the opportunity for independence and opportunity for livelihood from herself, and she graciously and gradually spits them out the window so that she not only offers safety, but saving for her children. She offers them life. She will no longer be able to exit. She will no longer be able to fly. She will no longer be able to do anything for herself. And it's all for the love of her children. It's all for the love and the saving of the next generation. It is a powerful portrait, and one might even say parable of love. Very simple, very straightforward, and yet a powerful image of what God's love looks like in this Christmas season. For 
What is it that Jesus himself does but deny himself celestial flight, plucking himself out of the heavens in order to wall himself into this world so that he could offer life? He gave up for himself all independence so that he would be fully dependent upon God, even entering the world as a little bitty baby. He would realize that he could pluck himself out of all power and shear himself from all deific might and become a simple baby offering everything to the world. He is the parable of love. And what we celebrate in this season of preparation is a getting ready for that love to enter the world to remind ourselves that God literally stepped into the world as love so that the world might love as God does. And that becomes our channel, right? That becomes our opportunity. Because what we celebrate in this season of Advent is a reminder that not only is hope and joy on the horizon, but a tangible, tactical, strategic understanding of love is being made real. And it's so real that it causes us to reflect. What is it we should do about that? What, what is it that we are to be about that? And that's when we begin to turn to the prophet Isaiah. For just as we learn that Melchizedek some 2,000 years prior to Jesus began to point us to hope and 1,000 years before Jesus, uh, the psalmist pointed us to joy, some 800 years before the birth of Jesus, Prophet Isaiah begins to tell of a suffering servant, a servant that would become the Messiah. Now, scholars don't believe for a second that, that Isaiah knew of a guy named Jesus who would be born, but they do believe, and I believe, and I hope you believe, that Isaiah is foreshadowing the coming of a Messiah, someone who would suffer on behalf of the whole world, someone who would point us to the perfect, powerful love of God. And his writing is very clear. He begins to help show us the big picture of what God is going to do in the world, the big picture of how God has been working since the beginning of time. And so some 800 years before Jesus is born, Isaiah is pointing us to a suffering servant that you and I know to be Jesus. Isaiah would do this no less than four times, and one of those is in uh, the 53rd chapter of his uh, book. And in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah paints a powerful portrait of what this suffering servant looks like. So much so that when we read this, as I will do in just a minute, you cannot help but hear and see and feel the very life and death and even resurrection of Jesus himself. So I encourage you as I read now from Isaiah 53 for you to picture where is Jesus in all this? How is this Jesus? And what are the, the word images, the picture that Isaiah is painting 800 years before the birth of Jesus? Listen to how he tells a story of which he is not completely aware and yet which he totally gets because he's painting God's picture for us. Listen to Isaiah describe this suffering servant. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? 
My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in a dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. He turned our backs, we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care, yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, that he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could, uh, so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of his people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious one because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for sinners. Almost 800 years before the birth of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I find that pretty fascinating. I find it absolutely miraculous. I find it amazing that the God of all love and the God of all creation could know that this was to be. This is how much God loves you. That God wants you to know that God was thinking of you long before you were born, long before Jesus was born, long before any of us were born. God cared enough about us to offer this servant to share love, to give of self, to offer unflinchingly in a way that changes and transforms hearts. This is the God who loves you. This is the God who entered the world as love so that we could love as God loves. That's our calling, you see. It's not just something that we dream about. It's not just something that we want to have happen. Isn't it absolutely fascinating that it could be so specific to several of the very instances in Jesus' life, right down to where he's buried? It is God's gift to us, and yet it's God's calling to us as well to say, 
I came here as love so that you would know what that love is and how it works. Now you do that love, right? I love the way John writes about this, this calling. In his first letter in the fourth chapter, John says it this way, this is what real love is. It's not our love for God. It is God's love for us. He sent His Son to die in our place to take away our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us that much, we also should love each other. You see, it's our calling. And Isaiah is painting that picture much like the hornbill's life that demonstrates what self-sacrifice means, what it means to offer self to others, what it means to give love away. Isaiah is saying that's why Christ came. That is his purpose. And so if we are the recipients of that love and we are called to offer that love to others, I wonder what is it that we might could learn from Isaiah? What is it that he can offer to us in his insight uh, that will help us better love? Because love not an emotion. I know we know this intellectually, but it is a verb, right? It is an action verb. It is something that we do. We do it with our loved ones. We do it with our friends. We do it for the world because it's what God calls us to. It's what His love represents. So when I reflect on Isaiah, I think there are maybe three things we can learn from his words foreshadowing and foretelling about this coming suffering servant that can guide us in our way. The first thing I think we learn from Isaiah is that love has to be based in care, that caring makes all the difference in the world, right? I, I care about you. I care about your circumstances. I care about who you are. I care about what's going on in your life. These are the words that we hear from Isaiah, things like, uh, it is our weaknesses that he carried he poured himself out for us. Those are words of caring. Those are words that offer uh, care and concern. And so a part of what we are called to do is to offer care and compassion, right? To care for the widows and the orphans, to care for those who are uh, not a part of us, to care for those that may be doing without or may be oppressed, that we have this compassion. Jesus' life was full of this. You know, the, the, the feeding of the 5,000 is in all four of the Gospels, but uh, one of my favorite uh, versions of that is in Matthew's Gospel. In the 14th chapter, it says in the 14th verse that when Jesus saw the crowd, when he saw the 5,000 people, he had compassion on them, and before he feeds them, he heals those who were sick because he has compassion, because he cares about the people, because he cares about what's going on in their lives. Love starts there, right? I care about you. I care about what's going on in your life and what happens to who you are. Isaiah is pointing out that the suffering servant starts with care, and that's what drives his love. The second thing that we cannot miss, it's all throughout Isaiah 53, and it's the very sort of purpose and nature of the suffering servant, is that love has a cost. It's not free, right? It, it takes energy, it takes effort, it, it takes all kinds of things, right? There is a cost. The cost that we heard from Isaiah is things like he was pierced for our rebellion. He was, um, he was like a lamb led to the slaughter, right? There's a cost involved. 
There's a cost involved in our love of Christ and for Jesus in the world as well. It's why when Jesus would call his disciples, Luke's gospel tells us in chapter 9, that he said, if you want to be my followers, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and, and then come follow. And in part, what he's saying is, this isn't about you. This is about others and loving them the way God loved us first, right? And so the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus, it's not about literal martyrdom, that is to say literal death, but it is about dying to self, right? It is about giving up my desires and wants and offering them to God as an offering, right? And saying, I will. I will go. I will do. I will love. This is what the birth of love in Jesus calls us to. And of course, you can't see Isaiah 53 without seeing that love takes commitment. It's not just a haphazard thing. It's not just something we stumble into. It's not just something that we kind of hope will work itself out. This genuine love of God that started millennia before the birth of Jesus and clearly becomes fulfilled in and through his birth. It's about commitment, God's commitment to all of creation, Jesus' commitment to, to live, to, to die, and to be raised from the dead. You hear it in phraseology like, uh, he was unjustly condemned, he was despised and rejected, and yet he kept going. He kept moving towards the cause. He kept living into his love every single day. Remember when Jesus um, is asked by the lawyer, hey, who, who is my neighbor? And he, he offers the parable that you and I now know as the Good Samaritan. And he, he summarily goes through all of the descriptions of what it means to be a good neighbor. And then he says to the lawyer, hey, who do you think proves to be neighbor in all this? To which the uh, uh, lawyer responds in Luke 10, 37. Well, I suppose the guy who did the merciful thing, uh, you might could translate that as the loving thing. And Jesus says to him, Go. Go and do likewise, right? Love is a doing thing, and it takes commitment. It takes not only a desire of the heart, but a, a will of the Spirit to be committed to what it is God wants in and through us because long before Jesus came, Isaiah is helping us to see that God was at work birthing love. And Jesus is simply the grand and glorious manifestation of what that love looks like and how it is we ought to give ourselves to that same love. That's why I'm so honored to serve with you here at Treach, where I know you desire to live that love, where you show it on a consistent and regular basis whether it's on a regular uh, commitment to the blessing bags or kids eat free or um, any of the love packs that we offer to those opportunities that come once a year, like the days of service or the um, CCA giving tree, right? Or any of those opportunities, whether it's the, the special ministries that have been welling up within some of your hearts and souls and you created a ministry like Liberty Ministry or She Supply or Honey Dudes, where God was compelling you to make ministry happen because you knew that you needed to love humanity because you were first loved by God. I'm so grateful that we have a, a new vision for the new future of this community because we envision a community where people matter 
brokenness is healed and love is lived. You see, it's that last little phrase that makes a difference right now for today's message, which is love is a tangible thing. Love is something we do and live in our hearts and lives because God first loved us. And I don't know any better way to see that or to understand that, but in and through the birth of Christ and His life, His teachings, His death, and His resurrection. And Isaiah wants to say to us in Isaiah 53, see, (laughs) it's coming, and it's powerful, and it changes hearts and lives. And this is our purpose as followers of Jesus. So my prayer for each of us is that we might know this love, we might feel it in our bones, that we might understand it for our lives, and that we might live it in the world. Because to harbor and to hold anything that Christ brings to us is to not live faithfully, but to deny our purpose in the world. And so I pray we will know it, and we will live it. Because God's greatest desire from the very beginning of time is that the world might know that God is love and that the world might know that through the followers of Jesus. May it be so in your heart and life and for all of God's kingdom this day and the next. Will you join me in prayer? Holy and loving God, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you for the powerful image that he brings to us of true, genuine, unadulterated love that commits itself most fully to you and offers self beyond compare. God, we're grateful for the glorious images, whether in parenthood or the hornbill or in people we know. And we're grateful, God, that you call us to this purpose, to serve others in your name, to live your love. Thank you that love has come into the world in and through Jesus Christ, that we, his followers, might love as you first loved us. God, this is our prayer, and we lift it in the name of Jesus, whom we know to be the Christ. Amen.